This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being here today with Thank you for being here with us today. Um, now is an especially important time to talk about the community and spaces of education as we are grieving another mass shooting at a space of learning. I believe that this conversation will energize us, uh, mobilize for systematic change. My name is Keish Kim. I'm a co-founder of the Georgia Undocumented Youth Alliance, as well as Freedom University, and a PhD candidate in American Studies. And I will be facilitating today's conversation. I am so honored and humbled to be part of celebrating this critical and timely book, Community as Rebellion, a syllabus for surviving academia as women of color with the three feminist powerhouses, Dr. Angela Davis, Dr. Chandra Tapali Mohanty, and the one and only Dr. Lorja Garcia-Pena. I am going to introduce them very briefly as they don't really need much introductions. And we will jump in with Dr. Garcia Pena sharing a bit about the book. And then Dr. Mohanty and Dr. Davis will share their insights on community as rebellion. Then we will open the conversation with audience Q&A. Uh, for those of us who think a different kind of world is possible, often lean on the wisdom of these three feminist warriors. I include myself in part of that we. Uh, beyond their political and um, professional achievements, Dr. Angela Davis was also a rebel since childhood. I recently learned uh, that she ran across segregated neighborhoods, taking on dares to ring the doorbells of white homeowners. Uh, Dr. Chandra Tapale Mohanty holds immense warmth that brings a whole room of different kinds of people into a circle. And Dr. Lorja Garcia-Pena will teach you about Ghana's and radically change the way one thinks about community and commitment. And I am thrilled and ready to learn more from, from them today. Uh, and without further ado, Dr. Lorja Garcia-Pena. Thank you so much, Cage, for this lovely introduction. I hope you know this, but I wrote this book for you. For my students. You know, I made Cage a decade ago, gosh, when she was a recent um, high school graduate, and I was beginning my career as an assistant professor of Latinx studies at the University of Georgia. And over the years, Cage and I, along with other amazing people, have co-created spaces of freedom and communities of care in spite of and in contradiction to the 
white supremacist elite institutions that pay our salaries. Um, the most beautiful testament of our communal rebellion as student teacher is that Cage has been trained as a critical ethnic studies scholar and will go on to become an amazing professor in that field very soon. So you just watch. We will be citing her sooner than she knows. And, and she did this despite the fact that the school she's graduating from and that I worked at for nearly a decade refuses to recognize ethnic studies as a legitimate field. Somehow, despite their violent disavowal of our knowledge, Keish and I and many other amazing students managed to do ethnic studies, regardless of what our diplomas or business cards may say. So this is why I asked you, Keish, to be here today because you have been and will always be my community. So thank you. And if I wrote this book for my students, I also must say that I wrote it because of Angela and Chandra, because of the care, mentorship, rigor, radical excellence, and rebellious community that they modeled for me. Along with so many other women in my life, you have made this journey not only possible for me, but joyful. So I am ecstatic to be here with the three of you in what for me is a big fiesta, a celebration, um, and the greatest contradiction of the isms that have tried to kill us. Me da la gana de decir que ganamos. We won. Our existence is the most radical of acts. I also, of course, want to say thank you to Haymarket for bringing us together and um, everyone here in virtual transnational community with us. A special shout out to my family in New Jersey, Santo Domingo and Milan, and to my fabulous um, colleagues in the RCD department at Tufts who organized a watch party to be physically together and in person right across the street from where Keish and I are sitting. Um, I, I felt I, and I feel held by you and I embrace you back. So gracias, gracias. Thank you, de todo corazón. Community as Rebellion is um, a deeply personal book. It is probably the most important thing I've written because it marks a radical departure from my, my previous writing. Um, while I do often publish pieces that are of interest to larger public and while I, my subject position, um, who I am and where I come from in the world are always present even in my academic writing, most of what I have written thus far has focused on cultural or historical issues that are somehow linked to my areas of research, which broadly speaking are related to questions of race, colonialism and immigration, particularly as affecting Latinx, Black Latinx people. So you see this book, which did not start as a book, but rather as a letter, or perhaps more accurately a rant, uh, really is in many ways a testament almost, or at least a tangible example of my journey as a scholar and a writer. It maps where I have come from, and where I hope we're headed or where we could be headed if we do the work. Um, and most importantly, where I am right now as a scholar, as a writer, and as a human being. I am what they call a generation and a half immigrant. I came to the United States at the age of 12 to meet my parents who had migrated prior to me. I was born in the Dominican Republic, a country that shares a small Caribbean island with Haiti. Uh, my parents left due to the economic conditions of the island that had resulted from five centuries of European and North American colonialisms and the ongoing structures of racial capitalism. My dad is the descendant of enslaved Africans who ran away from the Spanish colonizers in the mid-16th century. 
that is about 100 years before 1619. Uh, my mom is a descendant of Spanish farmers who fled poverty and war from Europe sometime in the 19th century and of indigenous and black Dominicans. I grew up in a working class immigrant multi-generational household, nourished, though I really didn't know it at the time, by the kinship and community co-created by people who were migrant, black, brown, and poor, and who understood that the only way not to die, the only way to survival was to rely on each other. They knew governments and institutions did not have their backs. So they created spaces and systems to sustain them and protect them. And for me, this materializing communal care, I was raised by an extended network, not just my parents, but my aunties and my grandmothers, blood related and not, um, in the sharing of property and resources and with the expectation that as a member of this community, I had a responsibility to support others in the time of need. So as a child and as a teen, I was expected to help care for younger kids in the family, for the elderly, for the disabled. That is, I was expected to be part of this community and to contribute in care. And in return, I knew that I would be cared for. This was a natural order of things. And it was not until I left home to pursue my studies that I realized the world worked much differently than how I had grown up. And needless to say, academia was a really rude awakening. So throughout my path as a scholar, my ethical commitment to community seemed to always be at odds with the goals of becoming a professor, uh, with the demands of the university. We were taught to guard our knowledge and research from others. And all I wanted to do was share it loudly and wide. Uh, we were asked to be silent and complicit with institutional policies that hindered and affected the lives of the most vulnerable. But my whole being was allergic to that silence. So we were asked to keep our students at arm uh, length and to guard our spaces. And my instinct was the opposite, to open my office and at times my home to students. So everything I did, how I moved, uh, in the world, my way of teaching, my ethics of communal care, um, which some people call mentoring, and even the books and materials I wanted to teach and how I wanted to teach them went against the university. I was always in trouble. I was always making trouble. And I was warned very early on in my career that if, it, that if I did not fall in line, if I did not shape up, I would not make it, whatever make it meant. Um, so I went through painful years and I endured what I would call a, an abusive relationship with my employer. And I lived in fear and extreme stress as I tried to reconcile what I understood as the work I wanted to do in the world and the demands of the colonizing racial capitalist white supremacist institutions I work for. So I came to embrace that discomfort to learn to live as Chicana feminist Gloria Saldu advised us to do on the barbed wire. And that discomfort became my barometer to know um, that I was doing things right. As I often tell my students, the day I feel completely comfortable in the university, the day that academia feels natural to me, that's my cue to quit. Um, so I know that my experiences in the academy of feeling like a stranger, an outsider, are not unique uh, to me, nor to my field, nor my career. I have dear friends and family members in other fields. And while the dynamics might be different, the institutional violence is the same. Even when we are, when there are well-meaning people in charge, the blind spots are so many. We have so much work left to do to repair and to undo the legacies of colonialism and slavery. We're still living very much in what Sadia Harman calls the afterlife of slavery. All our institutions, sadly so, are modeled after colonial systems. 
So the colonizing our spaces, our minds, our lives are require hard, intentional, and incredibly uncomfortable work. And even then, the results might not be perfect. But the alternative is doom. <laughs> so my proposal with this book is to think about community as an alternative to death, to the death sentence that is this individualistic racial capitalist society that we live in. I propose community as a verb, as something we practice rather than something we are part of or something that we find. To, to have community, we must make community. We must model communion in the spaces we inhabit. So the impulse of this little book of Community as Rebellion was very much grounded on optimism. And those people who know me know I'm, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic as a person on, on what philosopher Jonathan Lear calls radical hope, the hope that that leads to action, to change and to joyful living. While I write about institutional violence and the, the, the violence I experience in places like Harvard and the challenges that, that I face as I dare to enter spaces that were not designed for a fat Black Latina working class immigrant with a Latinx accent like myself. And while all of these stories and experiences are uh, traumatic and gutting and violent, the goal of the book is not just to name and make visible this violence and to expose the university for what it is, a colonizing white supremacist elite institution of exclusion, I mostly write about possibility, about the ways in which our collective intentional existence can indeed lead to revolution, to abolition, and to rebirth. The book invites, um, invites teachers to think about the classroom as spaces of freedom making and students as agents of liberation. I share tangible experience from my two decades of teaching Latinx studies, the lessons I've learned and the radical hope that fuels my rebellion. And finally, most of all, the book invites us to think about community as a verb, as an action of doing. We often hear people say things like, I cannot find community. I actually heard that phrase today. Sometimes we're so lucky to arrive in places where others have done the work of building community. That is certainly my, my, my case right now at, at the RCD at Tufts. And we are welcome and nourished into it. Academia is rarely that place for women of color. The book invites us to commune and to build the spaces of freedom and joy that we crave. It shares some of the ways in which I've done it in the past while also reminding us that everyone's experiences are different, that sometimes less is more, and that sometimes the most radical act can be simply being in the same space with people, breaking bread together. I invite us to be intentional about living as part of the sum, thinking about ourselves as part of traditions, as coming from lineage. For women of color in the academy, we did not make it solely because of our individual merits. We are here because of our collective efforts to make space for us. That knowledge is our power and our fuel. It doesn't take away, it gives us more. As we walk the hallways of the university, as we walk on this earth, the book invites us to remember that we're never walking alone. There is an entire legion of rebellious women, women we know and women we never knew, holding you, walking alongside you, building bridges with their backs so that you can cross to safety. Thank you so very much for being here, for reading this little book, and for communing with me in this journey. Want me to go? Kesh? 
Yes, go ahead. Sorry, Tanya. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm completely delighted to be here and to uh, talk about this deeply honest, hopeful, and practical syllabus for women of color in the U.S. Academy. I love the practical aspect of it, right? So especially since so many of the ideas that Lorja puts forward in this little book, um, little but fierce and powerful book, um, they resonate for me in terms of my own thinking and practice for almost four decades. So Lorja, you've been there two decades, I've been there four. So, and so this has been ongoing. So here are some ideas, I guess, um, that stand out for me. One, Lorja says, we are not born, but nurtured into rebellion. I think that's really important. These are not gifts that are given to us. These rebellious acts, ways of thinking, are what we make in community. The second idea, the idea of unbelonging in the academy, right? My term for this is practicing active disloyalty to the academy. And I talk about this constantly, um, which in fact, I think is a kind of an advantage because it allows you to not be seduced. Okay. The third point is the idea of the one or what other people call sort of the representation of representation, right? As this idea of the one as supporting and enabling the colonial project of the academy, and as in fact, the inevitable deferral of the project of diversity, inclusion, and justice, right? In fact, this notion of the one or the representation of representation in fact, allows the academy to defer the project of diversity and inclusion, as, as Lodger says. It's not about in addressing it seriously, right? Um, and then, of course, something she's been talking about the whole time, um, community as rebellion, creating communities of care that resist isolation and engender freedom. My version of this, as I have understood it and tried to enact it, is creating communities of dissent with my colleagues, with my students, with interdisciplinary collectives, alternative educational spaces, cross-institutional collaborations, and so on. And then finally, this idea of rejecting being an accomplice to the colonizing mission of the academy, thinking about silence as a form of violence, right? So this whole idea of being an accomplice on the one hand and creating allies on the other that hold you and help you proceed, right? Both are two sides of the same coin and really, really important. So let me just very briefly um, say a little bit about my own personal political journey alongside Loja, Angela, Kesh, and other sister comrades of color, my own 
communities of rebellion, right? So as a graduate student at the University of Illinois, I was fortunate enough to collaborate with an amazing group of transnational feminists of color and radical white feminists, mostly graduate students from around the world. So we collaborated to address the silences and erasures within even so-called progressive academic discourses. And in 1983, we organized an international conference called Common Differences, Third World Women and Feminist Perspectives. I believe, actually, that this was one of the first conferences outside the United Nations conferences, right, to bring third world feminists, which is what we called ourselves, and U.S. and European feminists of color together to talk about our common differences. And I think that was perhaps my first collaborative act of dissent in the U.S. Academy, going against the advice of my teachers who did not believe we could raise funds for such a conference and thought it was too risky for graduate students enrolled in Ph.D. programs. Now, that must sound familiar, right? Come on, you don't want to be doing this. Draws too much attention. Um, Too risky. I remember the joy, laughter, difficult emotional work, and deep sense of accomplishment that I felt when we pulled this off. My sister comrade Anne Russo and myself with a community of 150 comrades and volunteers. And we were all undergrad and grad students, honestly. We had some faculty, brave faculty who were working with us, but very tiny number. I learned then that dissent and collective feminist work to demystify power and relations of rule within the academy was risky, but also the right and only thing to do. And that it led to the possibility of imagining and building community on other than the colonizing racist commodified terms that were normative in the academy. And I learned that silence in the face of the abuse of power did the opposite. It led to the shrinking of radical spaces of community and to an arrested understanding or sense of freedom. Right. This was the beginning of my intellectual journey in the company of feminists of color. Historically, the conference emerged from decades of anti-colonial, anti-capitalist and national liberation movements that women in the global south, and we called ourselves third world women then, had waged since the 1950s. And the revolutionary freedom and civil rights movements that women of color had waged, waged in the global north. Questions of intersectionality and relationality of structures of power and women's place-based resistance, the complexities of working across race, class, sexuality, and nationality in the context of multiple colonial legacies and imperial adventures of the U.S., the centrality of economic issues, poverty, and class in envisioning and enacting gender justice, the significance of identity and community. One of the questions that always came up is, who are the we anyway? Who is the we? And how do we constitute ourselves? And the theoretical and epistemological contributions of a decolonial feminist engagement were all issues that emerged from this collective space and actually have stayed with me through all the work I've done since then. And since that time, I've 
actively sought and built these radical spaces of dissent in the academy with colleagues, students, and the larger academic community. So, you know, I've been part of many collectives, but I'm going to just mention a couple. And the first is being part of the Future of Minority Studies Research Project, which um, existed from 2004 to 2012. This project involves scholars and academic institutions with a primary interest in minority identities, minority in relation to power, not numerical, minority identities, education, and social transformation. I'm not going to go too much into it, but this was an incredibly important radical community that created um, collectives of people of color, primarily, who were interested across institutions, interested in doing radical intellectual political work in the academy, but often found themselves isolated as being the one in some space or the other. So bringing people together, having summer institutes, you know, creating these communities that have actually gone on um, since that time. It now, the network consists of over 215 scholars from 75 campuses across the country and abroad, right? And we had a, a satellite FMS. And, and I'm saying this about FMS because this is my version of ethnic studies lawyer. You know, this is how what we did at that time approximated, I think, the way we are now talking about ethnic studies, right? Um, and the project at Syracuse was housed in the Women and Gender Studies Department and funded through a progressive chancellor who unfortunately is no longer with us, meaning she is now at Rutgers Newark. Um, and in fact, this made possible a number of amazing events, but also um, we had we had uh, we housed and mentored fourteen postdoctoral fellows, and Loja was one of them, and that's how Loja, you and I met, right? That was in two thousand and ten, my dear. Okay, so um, so see, all of us go back a long way. I'm not even going to say when Angela and I met. That was much longer. But um, so and then the other project was in 2009. I was a found, founding member of the Democratizing Knowledge Collective at Syracuse. Um, I mention all these also because, in fact, both Angela and Loja have been part of these projects. OK, so for me, the idea of radical collectives and um, community as rebellion always transgresses the boundaries of one's own institution. There is really no way to imagine community in those truncated ways, right? Um, so anyway, that project led to a three-year summer institute called Just Academic Spaces, Creating New Publics Through Radical Literacies. It's a long-term project. It's still ongoing. Um, and it is working on curriculum and pedagogies to nurture dissident collectivities and spaces of resistance. In fact, it's, I think, a really good example of what Loja in the book talks 
about in terms of repurposing university spaces and resources to create freedom spaces. I love this idea of repurposing because that's really what a number of us who are in positions where we can access university resources have done for many, many, many decades and um, can continue doing. Right. It's it's one of the the ways that tenure such as it is allows us certain kinds of access and ways to repurpose the resources. Right. So what inspires me always is knowing that a commodified neoliberal academy is predicated on erasing or co-opting those of us on the margins, right? And it's only by surviving and thriving within, within radical scholar activist communities can we actually hope to survive and to literally transform the institution. So it's, um, <clears throat> let me, sorry, let me move towards um, a conclusion. I've always believed that radical scholars are made we are not born in the same way as I began, right? Um, you are not born rebellious, you are nurtured into rebellion. And that we are forged within communities and collect collectives that teach us how to resist the kind of individualized neoliberal seductions and erasures that result in colonized mindsets or despair, right? So this to me is the essence of living an insurgent life. I remember Audre Lorde saying to the 1989 graduating class at Oberlin College, quote, remember that the rumor that you cannot fight City Hall is started by City Hall, end of quote, right? So the way to combat neoliberal authoritarian cultures and institutions is one, to always question what appears to be normative with our local, within our local sites and connect these spaces to larger geopolitical processes of capitalism, racism, fascism, sexism, so on. That is to denaturalize and demystify power, always in relation to the institution. In other words, not to allow the institution to make us think that we are being objective by not addressing ourselves and our scholarship and teaching to the institution itself, right? Two, to nurture radical communities of dissent in and outside the institutional spaces we occupy at any given moment. That is, to refuse the isolation that neoliberal commodified cultures thrive on and to actively create guides, teachers, and mentors that inspire us. Three, to seek what my friend Angela calls unlikely coalitions that encourage us to struggle against injustice of all kinds. And four, to always remember that we are not the first nor the last to engage in oppositional social movements or the hard work of resistance. We stand on the shoulder, shoulders of many others who came before us. Histories of decolonization, resistance, and revolution are crucial reminders that radical scholarship and activism are legacies we inherit and that we must claim. So I want to conclude by reading a paragraph from the book, okay? Because to me, this is this this paragraph 
is in fact the the practice right that lawyer is encouraging us to engage in okay we cannot force our colleagues to be allies we cannot make them see what is right in front of their eyes but they refuse to acknowledge but we can insist that our labor becomes visible acknowledged and compensated we need to find our people and together we need to take the resources available to us through our institutions and use them to build spaces that sustain us that is how we make it that is how we thrive we also need to work together in community to create effective boycotting practices i love that by the way not enough people talk about boycotts honestly um effective boycotting practices to come up with sustainable ways to withhold and leverage our labor when necessary we need to say no to institutional work on diversity and inclusion committees absolutely a given do not join those committees okay as by now we know what that labor entails and that it never translates into action that actually benefits our students or faculty of color we can say no to serving as the one right lending le- legitimacy via our representation to what is ex- essentially a project of inclusion when we do decide to serve we need to leverage our service quantify our work and demand compensation we can do this for example by requiring time off from teaching in exchange for service i am reading this folks because although many of us know this stuff it takes a, a lot to demand these things of an institution that is not made in our image and that is constantly trying to get us to feel not as good as yeah we are we're never going to be you know bona fide citizens well if we are not then we might as well you know draw attention to the, all of the ways in which we are not citizens and withhold our labor do the boycotts do all of these things okay so there's lot more you know logia i could have read more but i'm going to end there and say thank you so much for the book for the community and for the love here thank you thanks unmute and um I'm trying to absorb the, the the amazing ideas that Chandra just uh, presented to us. Um, so, you know, first of all, thank you so much, Lorja, for writing this book. I I absolutely love its emphasis on community, and and I love the fact that its subtitle is a syllabus for surviving. Uh, uh academia as a woman of color and um, i'm also happy because now when someone shares a story of how traumatizing the academy has been i can tell them to read this book for solace for solidarity for community and for hope And as a matter of fact um um was it last week uh, 10 days ago 
I was um, invited by one of my former undergraduates who attended San Francisco State to visit her home in West Oakland, uh, which um, if you know Oakland, you know West Oakland is the traditionally Black section of Oakland. It's where the Black Panther Party was founded. Uh, In any event, um, uh, she um, got a muralist to create this phenomenal um, image, this mural on the exterior of her house as a tribute to the women in the Black Panther Party. Uh, And she also created a small exhibition space uh, uh, with images and documents uh, to remind us that, I suppose, this moment of intense engagements with um, anti-racism has a very, very long history. Um, So uh, she had been asking me to come over for quite some time. And, you know, I said, oh, my schedule, I have to see if I can fit it into the calendar. (laughs) And the last time she says, you know, Angela, just come. And um, I said, okay, I will. (laughs) Um, I met a number of people there. um, And um, in the conversation we had, we started to talk about the university. And there was one young black woman who volunteered that um, she was very happy because one of her closest friends, um, another young black woman was about to receive her PhD. Um, But she said this was not an altogether happy occasion since her friend had suffered seriously during her time as a graduate student. And uh, she had been traumatized multiple times and was on the verge of quitting uh, several times. So I was so happy to tell her that your book had just come out. and I gave her the title, um, and she immediately uh, looked it up online. And she says, absolutely, I'm going to call my friend right now to tell her that this is the book that she needs uh, to read. So, um, you know, thank you again, Aloysia. And thank you, Keish, for the wonderful um, introductions and for moderating this conference. And uh, thank you, Lorja, for in this program, giving us a a personal and a political context for understanding the development of of your book uh, and sharing something about your your background. Um, And Chandra, you know, you always do these amazing presentations. Uh, uh, You know, after I heard you, I said, oh, I, you know, I I, I should probably uh, just uh, hop off the call now. Um, but as I read uh, Lorge's book, I found myself really wishing that I had been able to consult this book when at UC Santa Cruz. Um, it was in the 1990s. We created uh, a formation which we called Research Cluster for the Study of Women of Color in Collaboration and Conflict. And I guess I should repeat that again. <laughs> Research Cluster for the Study of Women of Color in Collaboration and Conflict. Uh, And it was an amazing group. Initially, 
Uh, the group was supposed to be a space for sharing research and for developing collaborative projects. Uh, and we did publish a collection <clears throat> entitled Beyond the Frame, Women of Color and Visual Representation, which was edited by the two faculty advisors of the group, which, was, um, which were Nefertiti Tadiar uh, and, and, and myself. Um, the cluster was also largely responsible for organizing the very important conference, The Color of Violence, which led to the, the formation of the organization Insight, Women of Color Against Violence, which I think is now uh, Women and Gender Nonconforming People of Color Against Violence. So. The cluster also sponsored an ongoing film and video festival, which brought together filmmakers and videographers and scholars writing on visual culture. Uh, uh, anyway, the, the point that I wanted to emphasize is that um, this research cluster also served as a space for sharing, a space for collective support. Uh, uh, you know, for advice on dissertation research, for support offered to junior faculty, uh, and 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 for women who were feeling severely traumatized by their experiences. Uh, and it's 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 interesting that around the time of the creation of the cluster, a national gathering took place at MIT that was a, a called Black Women and the Academy. Uh, uh, and a number of the members uh, attended uh, that conference. And um, I remember that um, Jackie was there. And I, there, there, there's, a, there's a, uh, a phrase that she used that has continued to reverberate uh, in my head. Uh, she's, it was about uh, coming together across uh, all kinds of borders, across national borders, uh, across the borders of race. And, and she said, we have to learn each other's stories. We must learn each other's stories. Uh, and um, of course you recognize this Chandra because you have a long history of, uh, of collaboration um, with her. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, I received a grant in connection with a UC, um, University of California presidential chair. Uh, I, I was actually quite shocked when they offered me the presidential chair. Uh, and uh, I used the money to fund the cluster for uh, a number of years. Uh, um, I, I didn't expect anything in return, but what happened was that as soon as the news got out that I had been given a presidential chair, you know, all of the old conservative forces uh, came out of the woodwork. Uh, the uh, the members of the 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 region board of regents who called for um, my being uh, removed from my position, uh, you know, the old anti-communists and you know racists. Uh, uh, arguments began to um, uh, make themselves uh, heard again, and um, the the students and the 
faculty who were a part of the cluster uh, came to my aid. They were the ones who were in the forefront of the campaign to support me. I didn't even have to appeal to them uh, uh, to do that. and working with that formation, with the, the, the research cluster, gave me the opportunity to reflect that, to reflect on the fact that uh, my entire period, my entire time inside the academy, which Chandra has been, um, it has been more than 50 years. <laughs> Since 1969, so 50-some years, some odd years, has um, been a time devoted to uh, building community, nurturing community, benefiting from community, learning how to imagine myself, not so much as an individual, but as a member of intersecting uh, communities, uh, which in many ways, reinforced my um, childhood experience of, you know, growing up uh, uh, in, in a community that was uh, uh, hyper-marginalized and uh, where we where community was our, our only hope of survival. Uh, and, you know, my parents were teachers. My parents were both teachers. Uh, uh, and I, 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 I watched them as they gained courage and, and support. Uh, uh, from uh, the members of of their communities, and that sometimes even involved my father uh, participating in a um, patrol, an, an armed patrol to protect the community uh, from uh, the Ku Klux Klan and other uh, forms of racist violence. So, um, and as as a matter of fact, I think that we can. We can also say, and this is how I read your book, Lordia, that community is the alternative to violence. It is the alternative to the physical violence. It's linked to prisons and police and educational uh, institutions. It's it's the alternative to the epistemic violence uh, uh, that uh, characterizes uh, so many of the experiences of women of color in the academy. Uh, uh, and, and I love that you emphasize the active dimension of community. Community is not something that we discover. Uh, it is not something that is ready-made that we find. It is, um, it is a practice. Uh, uh, it is something uh, that we generate. Uh, uh, and it is also the source of optimism, the source of hope. Uh, and I, um, I, I'm going to end with uh, um, the point that Mariam Kava, whom I absolutely love, has made many times about, and I think your book uh, really uh, exemplifies this notion that hope is a practice. You know, hope also, like community, is not something to simply be discovered, to be found. Uh, we have to uh, produce that hope. We have to generate that hope. Uh, uh, we have to um, see hope, as Mariam Kaba uh, uh, insists, as a discipline. 
And I think I'll end there. Oh, thank you, Dr. Davis. Thank you, Dr. Mohanty and um, Dr. Garcia Pena for um, just powerful, insightful um, comments. And, and um, just, I'm kind of just in shock and in awe and just collecting myself. Um, we will sort of now transition into audience question and answer. Please uh, submit your questions and we will, oh, I will deliver the questions and um, these amazing feminist warriors can answer them. Um, but while people are generating those questions as a facilitator, I have the pleasure of asking the first question. Um, and my question is this. Uh, one of the things I learned in the book is that activism and community building also happens and must happen within the university. So as someone who organized in the community with no funders or boards, just grassroots organizing before coming into a university classroom, and, and Dr. Monty knows this very much, um, I once thought campus activism felt very naive and privileged. Um, and now spending a lot of time in academia building and fostering this community that all of you spoke of. I also see that the university is also a microcosm of the racist, sexist, imperialist, uh, capitalist mechanism of the nation state, right? And Pia Chatarti and uh, Sonia Maria also called it the imperial university in their edited collection, right? And all three of you have navigated organizing both inside and outside the university, um, as you all emphasized. So I wanted to ask you all, like, what makes university organizing unique? and crucial, especially in our historical present? Uh, and what is missing from university organizing that you all hope to see as we are continuously resisting um, in our small pockets and expanded networks of community? Thank you. I can start. I, I often get this question, especially after co-creating Freedom University, of um, how do you how do you navigate or how do you balance your activism and your research? How do you balance your activism and your teaching? And my answer is I don't. Um, they're not separate. They're very much the same for me. Uh, my the way I I I came to academia was not because I had this idea of of a profession. I came to academia because there was a lacking in my education. I did never had books that reflected the histories of people, of my people. I never had professors that were coming from the experiences that I was coming from. So it was, it was the impulse of not having those experiences at the college, graduate, high school levels all through my education from K to 12 and eventually from, uh, you know, undergrad to PhD um, that led me to the very crooked coming and going path of, through academia. So when you think about the university, like you said, Keish, as a microcosm of, of, our, of the nation state, um, of the globalized sort of capitalist system, when you um, also, when you think about the power that is knowledge making when the, when you think about the way in which archives libraries and institutions of learning sanction a lot of what we see eventually in the in the law 
So if we think about even how notions of citizenship were developed in this country, the way that the the logic that excluded eventually Puerto Rican citizenship was fabricated at Harvard University. So when we think about the power that these institutions have in creating uh, forms of exclusion, it's 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 a wonder why there isn't more activism happening within the university. We absolutely need to dismantle the university as it exists right now. And we do that in many multiple ways. And we can do that in little, little tiny ways. And we can do this in larger ways. But we, I think, as scholars, teachers, and students can absolutely create effective changes um, in within. While also, as you know, Chandra and Angela shared, while also creating spaces outside. I think we have to do both. Um, I think that if if we're going to try and exist in these uh, institutions, we must absolutely resist and fight back in whichever ways we can, while also creating spaces that sustain us outside and beyond the institutional spaces that we inhabit. I'll take a crack at adding something more. So I think that um, absolutely we have to do this. We It's crucial to do it within university spaces, primarily because of what Loja just said, but all of us believe that a lot of the knowledges that are produced in these spaces are in fact knowledges that are used to rule and dominate and create violences and create laws and regulations and policies, etc. So yes, we have to create spaces where we can challenge those knowledges, no question about it. Why is it hard? It's very hard to organize within the university, right? I have come to understand that actually people don't have courage in these spaces, that people seem to lack courage, that risk-taking is something that seems to have been socialized out of. People who are in very successful spaces and mobilize sort of um, the resources of the institution for themselves. I mean, some of it, I, I believe, has to do with having uh, unquestioned the sort of identity of the individual scholar um, and successful teacher. That is what it means to be a university citizen who's rewarded. And then you're rewarded for those things. So I think fighting against the the completely isolating, individualized understanding of one's own identity okay, is really hard, which is why a lot of the most radical organizing is by students on campuses. Takes a bloody long time for faculty to get there. I mean, there's always, obviously, there are pockets of faculty everywhere, you know, sort of doing the work of organizing. But it takes a very long time. I often wonder why, for instance, you know, all of those, um, the women's strike, for instance, yeah, the women's strike called for a, a walkout, a labor strike. It was so hard to organize something like that on a campus. 
it's like people don't don't see this as something they can do because you know that's their jobs are dependent in this way so anyway all of this is a way i'm ranting too but the point is i think this is it's really important that we do this and oftentimes the courage that we need comes from our connections outside our workspaces i think that that's one of the reasons why we cannot allow ourselves to be defined by the institution that we are in because that really completely shrinks our imagination right it just um and and that's a problem so i'm going to end there I um I think I'll first say that uh I have received the question um I would say thousands of times how can you spend so much time inside an institution which is uh, so racist and which is is so clearly responsible uh for a uh, producing of uh, the knowledge that is uh uh used to uh create the ideologies uh, that keep people um you know thinking that um this is the best place in the world that this is the greatest democracy in the world um and 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 so oftentimes people say well um uh, don't you find that it's more um uh liberating to work outside of the university to uh, do the kind of organizing that Keish was talking about uh, before in the community and um um my response is usually that uh wherever we are we will experience the uh uh the impact of this system under which we live of racial capitalism uh, there's no way to assume that there is one space that is freer than another space or that there is a space where we do not have to create communities and create arenas of struggle and i i want to just add to uh, what uh, both of you have said that uh, what what i have found really exciting about uh doing this work in the university is that we have collectively insisted that the university is not the only place where knowledge gets produced uh, that we are struggling to change citational practices uh, uh you know so that ideas that emanate uh, from uh, community struggles uh, from feminist formations uh, uh do not end up uh, being um concealed uh, by the fact that we have to find one scholar uh who first uh reported this idea as the citation uh and and especially as someone who's uh, done a lot of work around prison issues uh to insist on uh the institution of the prison as also a site for the production of knowledge uh, you know to recognize that the field 
critical carceral studies or critical prison studies, or, you know, it's called various things in various places, um, uh, to recognize that the foundational knowledge for that field was produced by uh, people who uh, hardly ever had formal education. Uh, and, and, and so um, to me, it's actually been very fulfilling to have made some small gains in that respect. And I, I want to um, suggest that interdisciplinary uh, um, fields uh, uh, have more potential for developing the kind of uh, emancipatory uh, theories and practices on the university that link up with what is happening uh, in other uh, venues and other sites. Thank you so much for that. I think that also resonates with me when you earlier mentioned that we have to learn each other's stories and histories. I think interdisciplinary does exactly that. Um, from this point on, I think we I will sort of assign a question to one person to speak just so that we can get through the questions. Um, I have a question from Vincente Perez who asked, what can men do to organize themselves and their peers away from patriarchy and the structures that force women of color to face compounded oppression? And um, Lorja, will you take this question for us? Gracias, Vicente. My, my suggestion um, is to speak less or none and listen uh, and listen some more. And when you think you've heard enough, then you start to listen even more. Um, we have to think um, of ourselves when we're, when we're trying to be allies to movements. We have to understand that we know very little. That when we think we we can empathize with what people's suffering has been, uh, it, it's very little that you can really understand. Um, and so, if you want to begin to to do the work, listen, listen, listen to what is needed, listen to um, where you should be, uh, occupy less space. Men occupy too much space in this world. Um, so make that space for others. Uh, I am really tired of hearing um, the phrase um, of um, I'm speaking for or I'm giving voice. People have voices. <laughs> what they don't have is microphones. Uh, we need to be passing on the mic and 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 tuning ourselves uh, turning ourselves off um and we see that um and and that goes for students and faculty and and, and administrators right we see all those of us who teach we see that in the classroom we see the way in which cis white men occupy so much space in the classroom and at times it's challenging for teachers and faculty to to create to create a space where where women and and, and queer folks and people of color feel safe to speak so check yourself. Check how much you're speaking and and listen, um, and 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 then make sure that you enter those spaces with humility and with the deep knowledge of how little you know. Uh, we have a question from Mariana Sa Samayoa, uh, who asks, "How can we deal with the claims that our community building is contributing to exclusionary systems, primarily by white people who feel entitled to be included and invited?" Um, who would like to take this question, Dr. Davis or Dr. Mahanti? I ignore such claims. I think they are not worth responding to, and I don't want to waste my time. 
I mean, honestly, please, there's a lot of work we have to do, you know, and if we sit here and we try to respond to something, someone who is clearly outside the struggle and and probably contributing to the conditions that we are fighting anyway, I mean, come on, we constantly are being accused of all kinds of stuff. You know, and and we really honestly have to pick and choose what if somebody is saying that what I would do is put my energy into organizing a larger critical mass rather than respond to someone saying, well, aren't you being exclusionary? That's kind of this very um, common, lazy, common denominator identity politics and individualist politics. So anyway, sorry, but <laughs> I'm just like, no, it's not, it's not worth responding to. But you, you know, Chandra, I think I, I, I totally agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think it's important um, for us to um, emphasize the degree, the degree to which people who think uh, in that way, in those terms, uh, have precisely been affected by the kind of capitalist individualism, and Western logic uh, that uh, 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 cannot um, see um, uh, the difference between individuals and communities. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because there's a tendency to assume that. Okay, I'm not a racist, uh, yeah. so uh, you know why should I even care or or whatever? Uh, yeah. But I think there is a larger project, and this actually goes to the question that was uh, asked before about the role of the university, of try of 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 those of us who have positions at the university, training students to be critical of that kind of logic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I can add very quickly, Mariana, if I'm a big fan of returning to discomfort, my students know that they know what it what it means. So I if if you find yourself in a faculty meeting where somebody's saying something incredibly racist to you, might turn around and ask them, did you mean to sound that racist? And you'll be really surprised at how people will not continue to push you once you've asked a very direct question. So we live in so much discomfort. We live walking on this earth and so much discomfort made by white supremacy. And then they still feel like they can ask, that they can demand. So why not turn around and demand, you know, did you mean to be that racist? Did you mean to to, to say such a misogynist um, <laughs> comment to me right now? I've done that a lot. And it's at the very least, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, I have a, there's a related question here by Shia McLeod, who asks, how do we navigate racialized colleagues in the academy who are in service to whiteness and its supremacy? Who would like to take that question? Well, racism isn't attached to individual bodies. No. Uh, And and, and the fact that um, we uh, apparently have recently learned uh, that uh, racism is structural, racism is systemic, racism is institutional. Uh, uh, and of course, it appeared at one moment that there was a, a kind of massive understanding of this, uh, but it never 
it, 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 it never ends that way. Uh, that was that was a moment of possibility at which we have to seize upon in order to continue to do the work to encourage people to think differently mm-hmm. uh, uh, and to, to 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 recognize that. You know, who gives a damn if you as an individual are racist or not? That's not what I'm concerned about. You know, I'm concerned about I'm concerned about uh, uh, um, um, the economy of uh, jobs and schools and, and educational institutions and prisons and police and healthcare systems. You know, that is where the racism uh, functions in such a lethal way. Yeah, I just to add to that, you know, it's it there isn't any direct connection between being a brown and black or indigenous person and being politically conscious of what that means. There is no direct connection. There's this this is work. We all have to do the work to come to this consciousness and analysis of the structural racism that Angela is talking about. So yes, there are always colleagues of color who are doing the institution's work. I mean, that's why they have the big big bucks and that's why they're hired, right? So I my attitude always is to not, to be very clear that I am not their enemy, that this is my fight is not with individuals in those positions. Exactly what Angela said, but saying it a little bit differently now. So it isn't the the racialized people who are doing the work of the university that are my enemy. In fact, it's the system and being able to talk about the structures in which, which mobilize all of us in different ways for it to work, being able to demystify that, right? To me, that is actually much more useful. So what I do know is that, you know, if I'm looking for an ally in, I don't know, if I'm looking for an ally in some kind of revolutionary um, movement in the university, some of these people are not my allies, but that's fine. You know, I mean, I have others and I'm clear about on what basis I make allies. I mean, I write about this in the book, but, you know, the university has done such a great job at this project of diversity and inclusion, making faculty of color feel like they're unique, like they're special. Like you're here because you're special. You're not like the others. You are somehow um, set up apart. And in, in that process, you also kind of pit people against each other. Because if you can only hire one Latina, well, <laughs> then what happens to everyone else who's racialized as a Latinx person? Like, what? how do you feel like you belong? This is something that is inherent to uh, the university as a system. It is meant to promote this idea that of complicity. And that that is that is in, in many ways my experience has been that is actually even worse um, it, when it comes to like racialized um, minoritized people. Right? You you feel like you have to prove yourself and you have to distance yourself from this from the struggle because you're the one who made it, or at least you're trying to. 
we have uh, a question that's been seconded by many folks um, in this anonymous. Uh, do you think there is a possibility for producing knowledge that supports community while retaining the neoliberal university? Yeah, we wouldn't be here otherwise. <laughs> no, that's the short answer. The long answer is let's not pretend that we are creating a revolution just by producing certain kinds of knowledges. Yeah, and so the point is to connect what we are doing in terms of our epistemic production to the larger politics of the institution, of the country, of the place you're in. Those to me are, that's really um, participating in transformative praxis. But but I think it would be, you know, um, just the idea of being able to produce radical knowledges isn't adequate because it is true that the neoliberal university basically domesticates all forms of radical knowledges that are produced. So then the question becomes, why are we producing these knowledges for whom are we producing these knowledges and what, what um, communities do they serve? And I think that those are important questions in terms of even our own intellectual projects, right? And the kind of work that graduate students do and PhDs and all of this stuff, those are all important questions. But the, the opposite of that, yes, we are in a neoliberal university, but if we just throw up our hands, then we would give up all hope. And we would, in fact, be saying that there, there aren't ways in which we can create, we can imagine different horizons or an, a different kind of university space. That's what we would be saying. And all of what we're talking about today is really about radical hope, right? And what what uh, Angela said, Mariam said, right? It's the practice of hope. So creating, producing radical knowledges in a neoliberal university is one practice of hope, but it is not the only, and it cannot be adequate in terms of our vision of transformation. That's what I'm saying. And let's, let's keep in mind that uh, we don't require a stable platform Mm-hmm. In order to do uh, the work, uh, we it, it's so often it's assumed that the university has to be this neutral space or this uh, a stable, untroubled launching pad in right. order for us to do work that is going to matter outside of the university. Uh, we've learned how to do more than one thing simultaneously, uh, so that you know as we engage in the production of of, of knowledge or Oftentimes, it's not the production; it's the the uh, um, you know academic uh, uh, re um, uh, making of knowledges that have been already been produced in other places. As we do that, we also challenge the institution itself. Uh, that always has to be an aspect and a dimension of the work that we do. 
I mean, as, and as we exist in these bodies, and uh, we're always at odds with all of these institutions, from the nation to the university. I mean, what does it mean to be a Black person, a citizen of the United States? What do you do with that citizenship? Um, you know, the, the place that we inhabit in this world is always at odds with the places that name us, whether it is our institutions or our nations. And so all we have to do is continue to exist. Uh, that's already radical enough. And so it, it, it's if we wait, like Angela said, if we wait for there to be a stable space, we will do nothing. And then what is what is left? What is left for us? What is left for our students? What is left for our for our kids? Um, I refuse to to sit around waiting. There is a question kind of related to this. Um, I think it's related about you know this idea of stable stability. Um, about there was a question that asked. Um, what have you all or one of you have identified or used as strategies to secure institutional funding to sustain radical initiatives like the ones that you have all mentioned? So I think it's more of a practical question, but also there's never really stability in funding. But yeah, go for it. I don't know how much of that we can say publicly. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of it. You know, Chandra and I have conspired uh, many times for things like very practical things like getting students to, to be funded, uh, to go to school, uh, to uh, putting together a symposia, to finding uh, ways to support um, artists and activists. Um, so it can be as simple as who, who are you reading in your syllabi and how are you giving back to them? Right. There's a, the Angela uh, sort of hinted at this, but academia is very extractive. Uh, we go into communities. We we take from artists. Uh, they make our work possible. We become famous and publish books and make money. And they stay, you know, like we would say in the DR, bien gracias, right? With not sometimes not as much as reading the work we do. So finding ways to give back uh, and to use university resources um, to support activists and artistic work, especially in the communities and the cities that our schools are at, and, um, and especially the communities that we study. Um, I, I think that's one very practical way in which we can support uh, financially some of some of the efforts that have been. So I, um, one way to think about this is to watch when you apply for grants and stuff, be very conscious of the language you're using. So do not use, lang I would never use the language of diversity and inclusion. However, you know, the democratizing knowledge project, it's really about decolonizing knowledge, okay? But we called it democratizing knowledge because come on, what administration really is against democratizing, okay? in many of our liberal spaces, right? So that was useful because we framed things in a particular way. Okay, so I would say that's one thing when you apply to institutional uh, funding. And then the other is what Loja just said, which is literally repurposing the resources we have in ways that are useful. So I'm involved with my colleague uh, and sister Linda Carty in the Feminist Freedom Warriors video archive. Now, we don't have any formal funding for this, 
but we have been able with you know the help uh, of undergraduate and graduate students and our own research you know whatever research monies we get to actually build an archive which we see as an alternative sort of uh, archive that is about narrating all of our stories yeah in ways that are really crucial for um for sort of launching epistemic challenges in all kinds of fields right so i think uh, and we both linda and i know that this is a long term project so we we when we have a little bit of money we do a little bit when we don't have money we we you know when there was pandemic there was pandemic and we couldn't travel we couldn't do a whole lot so it i i think it's being clear that when you create alternative projects or dissident projects that they will not move smoothly also in the ways that oftentimes when you have institutional support yeah it can really um you can move with a project but this is going to take time and you believe in it you just kind of work on it we'll take one more question press one or two more questions um we'll see how we do uh this is another more of a strategy question and i think these are helpful uh there's a question that asked um what uh any of any of you guys uh think about the application of community as rebellion to the identification of academic labor and building solidarity with solidarity with colleagues who aren't tenured or tenure track really important and i see that this question comes from ruha benjamin um who has a a wonderful new book called viral justice by the way uh, mm. so uh, uh, thank you uh, ruha i i think that is um you know such a key issue uh because as your question implies uh, uh as a consequence of of the 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 way in which racial capitalism um shapes and defines the university uh, increasingly the um intellectual labor of the university is provided uh, by by adjunct uh, faculty uh, and i i think that uh, uh, people who have tenure on these campuses have a deep responsibility uh, to support lecturers uh, and to um um uh, support the, the well, in some places they're not even unionized so, so, so you know support unionization uh, uh you know oftentimes we don't think of ourselves as providing uh, labor <laughs> you know but but that's exactly uh you know what is happening the university is exploiting all of uh, us in terms of that uh, labor but but uh, lecturers and adjuncts even more so uh and um you know particularly at a time uh when uh we are um you know trying to understand how the you know system of racial capitalism founded on colonialism and slavery is expressing itself in uh, the 21st century it is so 
essential to emphasize uh, you know, solidarity uh, uh, with our co-teachers. Uh, thank you for that answer. Um, I was also noted to announce that Dr. Benjamin and Dr. Garcia Peña will be in conversation about the book on June 15th in Lourdes Garcia Peña's hometown, Canton, New Jersey. And um, I think there will be an event link or file that will be uploaded. Um, should we wrap up? Should we take another question? Is this? I think we should hear from Lorgia uh, again. <laughs> Don't take it away. Well, I I feel so um, encouraged and loved and cared for to be in community with the three of you and to see uh, some of the names popping up. It was lovely to hear from Ruha. It is really this kind of conversations, this, this moments of engagement are exactly what the spirit of the book is about. It's about leaning on, on each other, uh, thinking about where we come from, the kinds of spaces that people have created for us, and the responsibility that we have as, as teachers and scholars to continue to create those spaces for our students. I think um, here in this group, we represent multiple generations of activists, women scholars, and um, and the work that we and the way in which our paths have crossed and, and the way in which have met through our work and through our praxis uh, is a testament of the power of community. I could have not existed as a scholar had it not been for, for Angela and for Chandra. Uh, when I first came to Syracuse as a postdoc, I was very shy. I was very insecure. I didn't think I could do this thing. And, and Chandra quite literally carried me and said, of course you can do this thing. This ain't nothing. Um, and, uh, and more recently, as I went through, uh, through what many of you know, I went through with, with, my, uh, my, with my tenure, uh, Angela did the same for me, uh, holding me uh, from, from afar and, 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 and really supporting uh, the work that, that I wanted my work to do in this world. So I just want to take this moment to thank all of the, all of the amazing women of color scholars in my, in my world, the ones I know. Um, the ones I don't know, I will not uh, mention names because then I'll get in trouble because I'll forget names. But you know who you are. Uh, you're my people. And uh, again, I want to thank you, Keish, uh, for being my community, for being here, uh, for for carrying me and making a space, um, a home for me in the in the university. And and this, I want to close by saying um, to to faculty, especially uh, young faculty watching. Don't be afraid to make community with your students. It, the kind, the ways in which uh, the university operates to separate us, it's, it's, it's really detrimental to community building, to becoming the kinds of scholars that we, that we want to become. Students have saved me over and over and over again. Um, I have more usually in common with uh, first-gen students of color than I do with most of my, um, my colleagues. And if I didn't have students supporting me, I would have left academia a really, really long time ago. So please remember to build with your students, to listen to them, and, and to not be afraid to, to co-create with your Thank you so very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast 
and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.